Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Dr. Kino's Film Emporium. I am Dr. Toby Reynolds and I have a marvellous shop here with the, the very latest in the underrated, underappreciated and under-the-radar films which my guests bring every week. So, I have a special guest this week from 20th Century Flicks, one of the uh, key um, pillars of the Bristol film community. So, uh, he's coming down the road now, manfully striding down with a hop and a skip in his step because uh, we have reason to celebrate tonight because of the, oh, I don't know, uh, perhaps election results and things. So, yes, in, in case you hear of any fireworks going off in the background, I'm sure that's just bonfire night, which is a little bit late um, and yeah. possibly a couple of other reasons. So... Oh, he's coming into the shop now with a very interesting package under his arm. It's Doctor. Sorry, Doctor. It's Mr. Paul Green. Hello, Paul. Hello. Actually, it is Doctor Paul Green. It's Doctor uh, Paul Green. I was right. Fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. I do. Well, uh, not, not that that's required for working at 20th Century Flick. Uh, no, that would be quite an overqualification, wouldn't it? To uh... yeah, we're we're all, we're all a bit overqualified. You know, you know, kind of high functioning slackers. Here Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> okay. I'm glad. Well, thank you so, for having me. You're most welcome. Paul, Paul come in, take a seat. Thank you very much indeed. Fire. Yeah, and yeah, we've got it crackling away in there, there with the uh, with the dark winter nights drawing in and things. So we're going to sit in front of it of the fire with the, in these elegant leather wing back chairs, which uh, which we like at the Emporium, and we get nice and cosy. So now you I can see from under your you have this is an interesting film because I know of it, but I've never actually seen it. And tell me about what you brought. So I've brought the 2006 film Stranger Than Fiction, uh -huh. which is um, a much loved film by me and much recommended, um, probably, you know, I think to the benefit of our customers here at the shop. And I don't know, I think it's a very special film for one that actually kind of came out within the mainstream mm. and perhaps gets overlooked because, and, and a bit over-edited. It's, um, it's worth mentioning that the, during the last lockdown, it was... It was on television on the Sony Pictures channel, mm -hmm. and they they edited it. They edited it so much that I almost didn't recognize it, or or even love it as much because they cut out some very important moments for me. Um, okay. So mm. I just wanted to say, is some people who have, who may think they have seen Stranger Than Fiction may have just seen the abridged Stranger Than Fiction, which is quite the same thing. Yeah, sounds like it's been gutted yes. in the editing suite, which is a terrible, terrible um, shame. I think we can talk about a number of films that have probably been over-edited for that one. I think um, I've just been reading uh, Peter Biskin's Down and Dirty Pictures um, about uh, Weins, um, Harvey Weinstein, boo, and he was also nicknamed Harvey Scissorhands because yeah. he used to cut his uh, the films that he was uh, involved with to ribbons to make it more sort of commercially acceptable. So it's a that's a weird thing that Sony did that. So because this isn't a particularly offensive film, is it? Well, it deals with some very strong existential themes, um, okay. including depression, suicide. Um, ah. And the, one of the moments, one of the moments that they cut out, um, even in the very late night viewing of it, mm. which I was amazed, um, is, is the moment where um, Emma Thompson's character steps off a ledge, and it's um, shocking, harrowing scene in which mm. you see her, um, these these um, the, it's the original soundtrack is playing. It's a very sad piano and strings, and she's just drifting. You know, she's holding her hand up, out over the ledge, and this wind blowing through her hair, and she looks, you know, she looks horribly depressed. Oh. Um, and there's this moment where she kind of lifts her foot, and nothing nothing stops her. This is very close to the beginning of the film, I might add. Right, and she, okay. And she steps off, 
uh, there's this moment of kind of like there's nothing stopping her and she she steps off almost to her own surprise and i just remember being shocked you know like just yeah. what, is, what has just happened because mm. um, up until this point she's just been kind of narrating harold's correct story um so there's, there's this um she's she's the narrator and there's um, the film starts with this lovely, lonely guy, Harold Crick, kind of going through his, his day where he wakes up alone, he goes to work alone, um, he eats his lunch alone, and um, he, ca- he has this obsession, of obsessive counting and quantifying characteristics, which is represented in the graphics around him, mm-hmm. um, um, which is very beautifully done. And, um, and Emma Thompson is telling us that for the last nine years that he has has done all these things as, um, you know, going to and from work just alone, you know, and that he's spent all this time, you know, and you can kind of see it in the way Will Ferrell moves. He's just mm. very, he's a very gray, not, you know, he's, he's a little hunched, but he's just, he's just, he's just a cog in the machine, you know, and sure. he's the invisible gray man. Yeah, and, gray man in a suit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, so there's, there's that, and you've been hearing Emma Thompson and Emma Thompson's voice, which you'd recognize. And I remember the first moment you see her in the film. And it really reminded me of um, Wings of Desire. The, of course, Wim Wenders with Peter Falk, yeah. Yeah, and um, and the first thought that popped into my mind is, oh, she's Will Ferrell's guardian angel. Right. You know, the reason we're hearing her narrated is because they're linked somehow, and that, and, and that's the story that we're going to get, and that explains ah. why, but no. <laughs> but no, it uh, turns it around. So this film, I mean, you've given us a really good sort of um, intro to it, we're going, to, we're going to get into the film probably later, but this um, this is doesn't sound like your average um, sort of Hollywood um, production, which is probably to its strength, I think. Absolutely, and it is it is actually a reaction to that because um, Zach Helm, who who wrote the screenplay, mm. he had been like kind of a, a Hollywood hoofer in many ways, just like you know working on other people's scripts and uh-huh. and and um, he'd sold some scripts, but they had never seen the light of day. Ah, stuck and, in development hell, probably. <laughs> yeah. So he was this talented young actor who had, you know, never had anything made. And um, one day he kind of had one of those um, Jerry Maguire breakdown mm-hmm. moments that, and he decided to, he wrote this manifesto for himself. And it's kind of gone on to be this kind of screenwriter's manifesto. Interesting. Yeah. And it was um, it was all about a nice little bit of it. Even yeah. better. Yes, um, I can see you reaching into your pocket. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this, it was a, a beautiful article about the the writing of the, um, the writing of. Um, Stranger Than Fiction, and it, um, it's in this, and there's a, the article is in 2006 episode, um, article for March for Vanity Fair. Uh-huh. Uh, the, I think I'll just find kind of one of the manifesto headlines, because um, it's in different sections. Uh, sorry, I'm just, uh, rule. That's okay. Okay, uh, rule one, section one. I will no, no longer allow financial need or career ambition to determine the direction of my work. Good. Not, that's good advice. Yes. <laughs> I will not put myself in any position in which my work is owned to another party. And mm. that, he did have things that were owned um, by different studios, like Fox at the time had um, had bought his uh, Mr. Magnorian's um, Wonder Emporium. Right. Dustin Hoffman, wasn't it? That was yeah, made um, a bit later. Mm. Um, but was written beforehand. Mm-hmm. Still very much part of the studio system. And sure. With, with the money he made from Stranger Than Fiction, he um, bought back the script from Fox ah. to make it, and then and, and he actually got to direct it himself. I mean, fantastic! Oh, good for him. So that's yeah. ah, good stuff. That's really heartening actually to hear that. So, because writers traditionally don't really have much power in Hollywood, do they? 
No, no, really not. But um, luckily, thanks to the, the Writers Guild of America and, and mm. writers around the world, they, there was this clause that after five years, if, if a script hasn't been, you know, isn't in kind of pre-production or production, mm. the screenwriter does have the option of buying it back. And that's okay. the loophole that he used. And Fabulous. But... Um, yeah, so that's a bit, but that's a very different animal. And and what's indeed also interest, interesting, worth mentioning is that the director Mark Forster mm. did World War Z or World War Z, you know. Yeah, and Monsters he, Ball, I think, as well. Did yeah, he? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so he he never likes to do the same genre twice. No, so, which is great. I love it when directors do that when they can play in genres but never actually get sort of stuck in one. Yeah. Sometimes it works. So. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> um, but this I'm is thinking. Like, I'm thinking Sam Mendes um, is another director. He's a big favourite of mine, and I, I did, I did um, some research on him. Okay. And he he does he seems to play in genres. He's got a lot of different um, uh, films in very different in very different uh, genres to his name. So yeah, I, yeah. I think very. I mean, I think we're very lucky to have him in a way because as a as a film director because I think he was very much at home as a as a as a theatre director. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And yeah, so I I. Even though some, you know, the was it Spectre? He did Spectre. He did Spectre. He did um, Skyfall. Yeah. Skyfall, I thought, was a, a great effort. I loved but, it. I loved it. I thought Spectre was well, not a bit bloated. I think is the phrase I'd use. I think it could have done with about ten to fifteen minutes um, trimming. Well, um, not not just that. I mean, there. I thought there was an inherent flaw in how James Bond was portrayed. You know, and and. Mm. Risks that, that he was putting the public at, and you know, like crashing helicopters over crowds. Yeah, yeah. Like, this, this is not the work of a hero. <laughs> no, this no, no. I can't root for this guy because he just nearly killed half of Mexico City. Indeed, yes. You know, it's Day of the Dead, but come on, you know, you don't have to actually uh, <laughs> add to the body count. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So. so yes, I mean, so Paul, um, you have uh, an American accent, but you're actually born in England, weren't you? So yeah, so yeah. I'm from somewhere over the Atlantic. Um, mm. go back to America, which hasn't been for a year now for obvious reasons, but mm. um, they, they make fun of me for saying um, process instead of process. And yeah, sure. So, so I'm, I, I don't have a pure American accent as, as I used to have. No, but we, no we moved to New Jersey when I was seven and it was, you know, it was, it was, I went to quite a rough school and it was like, it was mm-hmm. kind of teased for having this thick Wiltshire accent. and. Mm. Very different, so I imagine, from a New Jersey sort of accent, a bit exactly. like Sopranos. Yeah. And I, also, I also had, I mean, this is it, I was the consummate nerdy new kid, because, I mean, mm-hmm. one of the first things they made, made me do as a, as a kid in, in, new, in the school system was to wear an eye patch. You know, like I, oh. had a, I was like, I had a lazy eye, and so okay. like, I had to wear like a, an eye patch over my right eye and these really thick glasses. And okay. So not, not marking you out for any kind of special oh. treatment, as I mean... <laughs> Oh, oh no! Getting my ass kicked on the playground. Oh, Paul, I'm feeling for you, mate. I'm I'm also a specky myself, and <laughs> I never never wore an eye patch, but that's harsh. That is yeah, hard, man. Uh, my my really, my deep sympathies. Thank you. Yeah. It, it set me up for a lifetime of you know that. <laughs> Indeed, and uh, so, retreating so I, into retreating to film, I imagine, was probably yeah. quite a comfort. It is. It is. Um, and it, it it. I mean, it's probably one of the reasons that I identify with. This character, Harold, Harold Crick, indeed, well in the, indeed, um, um, because he is. Yeah, I've always been a bit of a, a bit of a loner and an outcast, and sure, um, and I think 
everybody who works in the shop is. <laughs> yeah, so um, all individuals. Yeah, there's that. Uh, I think that sort of um, strength in numbers for geeks. I think, and mm. it's yeah. Yeah. Re- I mean, recently I I uh, I used to misspend my youth playing Dungeons and Dragons, which was probably yeah. possibly one of the geekiest things you can do as a teenager, and uh, and I did that many moons ago, um, and I hadn't played it in a long time, um, and I went back to do my first game. Uh, about a week ago actually and it was a lot of fun and it's sort of it's funny the older you get there's sort of more sometimes you return to things in your youth so there we go there we go if i if i'd had three other friends i probably would have (laughs) 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 so indeed oh there we go paul let's take it to your education so how long were you in the states for uh well let's see um from 1986 to um until 2001 i arrived so a fair time yeah but i i mean i was we were always back and forth like my grandparents were in swindon and when i was Mm. when i was eight i lived with with my grandparents between my freshman year and sophomore year of university and things Mm -hmm. like that so it so it's always been a very back and forth relationship yeah transatlantic yeah yeah Excellent. So where did you go to university? So I did my undergraduate in philosophy and creative writing at the University of Pittsburgh. Okay. Uh, and then I, I mean, and then I worked for a number of jobs, including at a video store in Pittsburgh um, mm-hmm. after that. Um, and then I came to Bristol to study uh, filmmaking. I did mm-hmm. a master's in television production at the University oh, of Bristol. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and then I worked as the, the camera technician in the drama department for a year and then started a PhD. Great. And I did a... I did a PhD in drama and psychology. Okay. Um, and after I did that, then I joined the Invisible Circus. <laughs> ah, as you do. Uh, for those of us, sorry, for those people who don't know, uh, tell us about the Invisible Circus because this is um, quite a Bristolian thing, isn't it? Mm, very much so. Um, so we, we were, I mean, they arrived in Bristol about 2005 and started squatting on derelict buildings around Bristol and kind of just putting on the best parties. And they were all really bohemian and kind of, Kind of what you imagine, kind of like the Belle Epoch, you know, was like. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Weimar um, just, Germany, and yeah. yeah, it was just a real speakeasy kind of thing, and it was yeah, it was all really really dodgy, and there was this incredibly creative group of you know, circus performers, artists, um, and just general radicals like mm-hmm. um, that were just kind of I don't know, fighting the system, floating around, doing in the free party scene, um, and so I, I got to know them from. Um, very early on when they arrived in Bristol and kind of became friends and mm-hmm. during the course of my PhD going to these parties and things um, and helping out a little bit here and there and then we had uh, after being kicked out of the Audi garage which was this three-story park, three parking garage in yeah that's up on the, the Cheltenham Road isn't it yeah, Croft area Stokescroft which is area sort of Bristol. yeah and uh, they, there was just this amazing party that they put on there um, and so they one of the arts council officers from um, Bristol City Council was there, named Ruth Essex. Um, and at, at the time, this was during um, Labour's um, New Labour's Britain. Indeed, um, the, <laughs> the, the art department at the Bristol City Council was about forty pe- employed about forty people. Um, mm. Now it's just one person, kind of covering a bunch of different things. Yeah, um, tragic. It's tragic. Was, but Ruth did this incredible thing of kind of reaching out to the Invisibles and helping them find um, a, bu- a building in collaboration with one of the developers. And so the Invisibles um, were kind of helping to transform this building into an art space. And, mm. and 
it became and it became kind of an ongoing thing. We we started moving, and I started kind of there was a show when we were at the, um, the Bridewell Fire Station in the center. Mm. It was called Carneyville. Yes, was, yes, was, I didn't see it, but I know I remember seeing it advertised. It looked brilliant. It was so we we did a we did four kind of iterations of Carneyville. Um, mm. It was it was there was this massive call out for kind of builders set set you know set and prop makers you know performers of all kinds and musicians and I was like well and this was when I was between my um I just finished my PhD and hadn't found any work and so mm -hmm. I was kind of, well I've got the time and I, I've got building and set building experience so I came down with for the first day to build crew and I. I was taught how to put up scaffolding. We started putting up scaffolding, and then we, you know, I was only going to do a few days, but then I ended up doing every single day of the build. Good for you. <laughs> um, and, and performing in the show, um, like as a kind of a walkabout, kind of um, bouffant clown kind of mm -hmm. character in inhabited inhabited the space, just walking around. And I was like a, I was this old violin player with a one of the one of the reject beards from Lord of the Rings actually. Oh fantastic. Okay, it was, excellent. It was actually a Gandalf beard, but it was much bushier, wider yeah. than was finally accepted. Interesting. Um, so okay. I got I got to wear this incredibly big beard and stuff. Um, and was people, it scratchy? <laughs> it was and people tugged on it but I had it glued on so tight that nobody they just it was that kind of miracle on thirty fourth street moment where I was sure. going, oh, and then people thought, Okay, you He's a weird old man. You really are. You really are an old violin player, <laughs> a Gandalf's brother. <laughs> exactly, and and so I was playing this old old um, violin player named Saul, and it was like mm -hmm. themes from Fiddler on the Roof and stuff like that to them. And it was yeah, it was great fun. And then the show was over. You know, after like a two week run, show was over, and it was time to take everything down. And most of the pe most of this massive, this three hundred cast, you know, mm. people in the crew, and everybody just pretty much scattered after that. And uh. I, I just kind of stuck around and I was like, do you want a hand taking it down? And yep. yeah, the producer, Andy, was like, nobody's asked me that yet. <laughs> and so then we took it down and that was, you know, kind of therapeutic because it was such a transformative experience. And mm. then it took it down. Um, I just turned to him and said, you know, what are we doing next? And mm. so I spent a lot, you know, a big part of the last 10 years perform, like working and performing, learning all kinds of things like um, prop making which I use the video shop as well, like making film props like the Necronomicon and, mm -hmm. you know, from Evil Dead and the, the Flux Capacitor from Back to the Future. Brilliant. The Cube from Hellraiser. And they're, they're all, and the, the, the treasure map from Goonies, which is another personal favorite. Oh, so, wonderful. So I, I decorate the, the shop with these kind of, these little props that I, I enjoy to make, but it was, it was really the prop makers with the Invisible Circus, um, Gary Losh and um, Sarah Edwards, who've done a lot of work, work with Ardman as well. They do mm. a lot. Um, so there's this, this incredibly talented pool of artists that are in Bristol. And, there are. Yeah, it's and, a fantastic city, I think, for that. There's a lot of creativity sloshing around here. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, the Invisibles was just kind of this magnet for all of us. And, um, and so I got to know a lot of people through that and, and acquired so many skills and you know so much you know performance experience and things mm -hmm. doing that and then um i mean the whole time i was bristol i was renting movies from 20th century flicks um <laughs> 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 uh, and that's how i got to know dave and dave because i was also making films i mean I, I i still do some music videos and stuff like that but i've mm -hmm. come to terms with the fact that i'm not a very good director mm -hmm. I, I quite i quite enjoy the writing side of things but mm. I, in terms of direction, you kind of need a, a stronger voice than mine. I'm a bit, sure. too, you know, acquiescent. Like, why don't we not do it like that? Do it like this. Yeah, let's give it mm -hmm. a try. Uh -huh. They just never ended up, you know, so I'm, I try not to criticize. <laughs> 
um, bad films too badly because I've made some. And, uh, uh, indeed. <laughs> and I just know, I just know that you know anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Mm. We and it's you know sometimes it's it's just not the right ingredients to get the to get the you know the the stew that you wanted at the end. Mm. So yeah, so I'm I'm yeah. very forgiving I think when it comes to film, but <laughs> but um, yeah. I don't know. So that, I mean, I've been in Bristol for, oh, I guess, 20, 19 years now. Yeah, it's one of these places. I mean, I turned up in uh, 2000 and it's, uh, I think there's something in the water. You just end up staying here. And it's, yeah, it's a great city in many, many ways. I know, that's it. I've never lived anywhere as long as, as I've lived here. Uh, likewise, likewise, yeah. yeah. So, Paul, what was your PhD on? Uh, it was interpreting marriage counselling data using film and new media techniques. Oh, wow. Okay. In, uh, that's quite different from the usual film PhDs, like looking at sort of, you know, um, like Hitchcock's use of, uh, of blonde actresses or whatever. Well, <laughs> so. yeah, because it, it was like a, a psychology and, and ah. drama PhD. It was kind of like I was, I mean, it was based at the drama department at the University of Bristol, but I also had a psychology advisor. Um, sure. John Waite from... Um, who was kind of an expert in um, in in um, Artie Lang and like right yes yes and, and I, I I love Artie Lang's like you know ideas on um, psychology and psychiatry and I'm I'm very anti kind of lobotomy and lecture shock. oh absolutely no it's it's pretty it's pretty scary what has gone on in the name of mental health in terms exactly. of and especially nineteenth and twentieth century I mean Bill Bryson's latest book The Body details i forget the guy's name but he this was like the king of the lobotomies he used to perform them virtually you know without any kind of anesthetic in some cases and this was in 1940s 50s and 60s america and it's it's just incredible to think that that was allowed to go on yeah but, and, but yeah and probably still does in, in some some circumstances but it's like it sure. was i was horrified by that and it's, it's in the the new series uh the netflix series ratchet as well. Okay. Yes, which has got um, the one of oh, I forget her name, but um, she's a fantastic actress. Um, Ali Paulson, Paulson, something. Yes, yeah, Sarah Paulson. Thank Sarah, you, Sarah yeah. Paulson. Yeah, brilliant actress, and she plays Nurse Ratchet in that. Yeah. So, uh, but if, I mean, I I am not easily scared in film. Mm. The lobotomy scene, that that sort of that sort of thing. Like, I find one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like a terrifying, you know, a really uncomfortable film to watch. In the same mm. way, I think some people find, you know, some horror films, you know. But yeah, mm -hmm. so I was kind of very drawn to Artie Lang's approach to psychology and psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And this is he's a very, he's got a very little known work called the Interpersonal Perception Method, mm -hmm. wrote, which is all about um, couples counseling and um, interpersonal fantasy systems. Okay. You know, where, where the um, is it's not the, the so because the smallest unit in a relationship is two. It's not one. Mm. And, um, and it, it, I was I was very interested in how and the fantasies. Therefore, these kind of the, the ideas of what the relationship is are kind of maintained by both people in this kind of space between them. Mm. Yes. And, and that the the interpersonal perception method is all about kind of mapping those kind of communications and those views on his view of her, her view of him, mm -hmm. himself, and her view of herself, but also his view of her view of herself. You know? Indeed, yes. So, it's like you have your own idea of the relationship, and that may not actually be the same as um, uh, the other person's um, view of the relationship. Exactly. And so I was yeah. studying this data set by this couple called the Joneses. That's not their mm -hmm. real But the Joneses had some incredible kind of knots in their relationship. And mm. like things like on the issue of torment, you know, 
Mrs. Jones thought that Mr. Jones tormented himself, but Mr. Jones denied it. And, right. And Mr. Jones thought Mrs. Jones tormented herself. Okay, so there's a commonality but, there, <laughs> yeah. but they never thought they actually were doing it. And not yet. And, but so torment was clearly part of the relationship, but though no, neither person was willing to kind of own it, and so it was this kind of interpersonal fantasy system where one needed to see torment in the other, where the the other wasn't feeling it. And so there's a lot of projection going on between exactly. both of them. Yeah. So one thing that's film is good at is projection and, and kind of these kind of, you know, how, how do you re then represent those, you know, those data sets? And so indeed, yeah, which so leads I'm... us very nicely, Paul, onto, onto Stranger Than Fiction, because yeah, um, <laughs> there's, there's a number of things about this film, which I, I found really interesting from the, uh, from the Wikipedia entry, which I very briefly looked at. And I think we need to, we need to say a bit about the cast, because it's a really interesting choice oh, of the main character, isn't it? And it's Will Ferrell. Well, not just the main cast. So Will Ferrell, yeah, yeah. Who's, who's you know a great, you know, he's kind of I'd kind of call him the Nick Cave of, of Nick Nick Cage, sorry, the Nick Cage of comedies, because like mm -hmm. when when he's not sure how to make a line funny, he shouts it in the same yes. way. Yeah. Nick Cage doesn't when he doesn't know how to perform a line, he kind of shouts it. Yeah, choose the scenery. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> he um, that it's 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 this kind of phenomena that I've noticed all my life, where these comedians can really break my heart you know mm, and, mm, tears of a clown yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and having having been one of those types of clowns i i, mm -hmm. I empathize but it's like for me this is this is his role and he didn't really get recognized for it he didn't receive like any awards for mm. strength, nor did emma thompson who i really no no indeed so you um, mentioned her uh, like she's she's suicidally depressed isn't she in this film yeah, which you don't but, think he's going to be a, a barrel of laughs but it, is it a, is it a case of this film being a real sort of mixture of pathos and humor and sort of there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this by the sounds it's, of it. it's it's so interesting to kind of describe because you 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 meet harold you, you're introduced to him by the narration of emma thompson's character um and you get the sense that um and one one day harold wakes up and he can hear the narrator so we've had a few scenes where emma thompson has been describing harold to us his mm -hmm. lone, you know his his isolation from the world his obsessive counting but then one day when he's brushing his you know 32 you know 32 teeth 72 times you know okay yeah and he's you know like he stops and he can he can hear that voice you know and mm -hmm. he, it makes for some great comedic sketches as well mm. you know, great comedic so you did need somebody who could do comedy but the thing is i mean it's karen the the character of karen eiffel who's played by emma, emma thompson her i think her her depression, her Harold's life has kind of driven his narrator to suicide. Right. His, okay. loneliness, his depression, her kind of living with this character for so long has kind of crippled her, you know, to the point where she is, she is standing on a ledge. But mm. um, after she jumps, you have that horrific moment when she jumps. Um, it's um, somebody says, hello. And she mm -hmm. kind of mid, mid air, she snaps out of it and she's being interrupted by, um, an assistant who has been sent by the publisher to help her finish the book because ah. because Karen is stuck. She doesn't know how to kill. That's his block, right? Got writer's block, um, and so there's. I mean, there's all these wonderful moments between Queen Latifah, who plays Penny, the assistant, mm -hmm. um, not her assistant. So she's there from the publishers that kind of forced the writer to finish, and at the same time, you've got Emma Thompson kind of going out in the pouring rain and sitting and 
imagining car crashes and there's all okay. these beautiful fantasy scenes like her jumping off the off the ledge you know where she's trying to imagine and it's not it is her but it's also she's imagining how harold is going to die mm -hmm. because, and on on one of these okay you know on after a few days of narrating you know harold hearing the narration of his life um the narrator tells announces that little did he know that this simple seemingly innocuous act would bring about his untimely death and, and he hears this so and he hears this and he's so it's almost like a, a curse that he's heard that he's going to yeah. die but it's, it's it's like um yeah so and that triggers this kind of existential search for how is he going to die why is he going you know why you know he's just screaming to the heavens why my death you know mm. why, mm. why and he doesn't know the source of this voice so he and as this, so things at work have been getting a little shaky since he started hearing the voice, and, mm -hmm. and he's been referred to human resources, which is um, and the human resource kind of manager is played by um, Tom Hulse. Oh yes, yes, yeah, Mozart, yeah, from Amadeus, you know, mm. so, who I adore. I love. You know, I think he's an amazing actor, and I wish we mm. had more. Um, and so he gets referred to HR, and it's just a very funny scene, but decides to take some vacation time. He, he then starts using that vacation time to kind of try and track down the narrator. And he gets, and for anybody who's kind of familiar with like William Goldman or, or kind of Propian narrative structure, mm -hmm. it's kind of like this. He's meeting these kind of wizards <laughs> along okay. the way who are giving him more information, you know, about how to kind of find this narrator. And, you know, another one is, is Linda Hunt. You know who's you know yes yes amazing actress who's amazing you know, she, actress and she's and uh and so she plays dr mitag uh leffler and so she she says she's she believes that he's got schizophrenia she's like mm -hmm. you're hearing a voice you know telling you to do telling me to do things not telling me to do things telling about the things i'm doing <laughs> she's narrating my life but with um more accurately and with a better vocabulary and um so she wants to put him on heavy doses of, you know, medication. And mm -hmm. he says, well, if it, even if this is just in my mind, you know, and, and I'm hearing this narrator, you know, what, who, you know, who should I speak to about it? And she refers him to Dustin Hoffman, who's a professor of literature okay. at the nearby university. So there's so some he, pretty he interesting cast and stuff. Wizard. Yeah. There's a great cast then, by the sounds of it. Cast, and I, yeah. It really is. It really was the script that I mean I know it was the script that sold Emma Thompson on mm -hmm. on the on the role and and to a bunch of other people as well. Mm. Um, and what's really interesting because I, I mean when I just as a as a screenwriter writer and just a general writer myself and I do this with song songwriting lyrics as well mm -hmm. is that um, if I love a song I rip it apart you know, mm -hmm. I go into its structure its rhyme everything and so I've done that with um, this I found. An earlier draft of the Stranger Than Fiction script oh, online, nice. mm -hmm. uh, and it was it was a near final draft. But um, you get some beautiful glimpses into things that didn't make it into the film, but which are kind uh, of in the film. But, shame. So yeah. they were. So for example, like um, the, there was a, a a title that was going going to go at the beginning of the film, which says, "Life is the crummiest book I ever read," <laughs> and and that's a quote from a Bad Religion song. Okay. Called, yeah. Called "Stranger Than Fiction." Now, right. the "Stranger Than Fiction" song is quoting, you know, Mark Twain. You know, uh -huh. in, who in his I think what was it called? Um, something about the equator. Following the equator by Mark mm -hmm. Twain, in in which he says, you know, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. Mm -hmm. And so you have this um, you have these titles which were in the in the script, but which have 
been removed. And another one came from a band Soundgarden by mm. Chris Cornell, who unfortunately mm. did commit suicide after yes, a show in Detroit. Yes. He, he wrote, and he he wrote in in the, in one of the titles that's in in the film. I woke up the same. I woke up the same as any other day, except the voice was in my head. So it's it may be, and that's not in the film. Mm-hmm. But that that that's a great way of summing up the film. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's what happens to Harold Crick. He wakes up one day, and Emma Thompson's voice. Is in his head. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So lots of stuff going on with this. I mean, there's the sort of, you're talking with like diegetic and non-diegetic sound design and things. So um, who directed this? So yeah, it was Mark Forster who did World War Z, World War Z. Um, And and a lot of kind of Harold's internal life, his quantifying of things. um, And this is set, is kind of represented through the graphics. So Harold Mm -hmm. walks a bathroom at one point actually follows Dustin Hoffman into a bathroom which is something you probably shouldn't do mm-hmm. but he follows Dustin Hoffman into a bathroom and in through the graphics Harold calculates the percentage full that all the soap dispensers are <laughs> this, this is while Dustin Hoffman is talking and it's very subtly done you know okay you could easily miss it but yes Harold's inner world is being calculated and graphed for us throughout the course of the film and one thing that Emma Thompson's says in her narration of, about Harold Crick is that he was a man of infinite numbers and remarkably few words. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're talking about diegetic and non-diegetic elements, but we're also talking about this kind of push and pull between um, quantity and quality. Sure, um, okay. And, mm. and it's, it, uh, you'd think that this kind of lovable gray man, you know, why would people, nobody hate, would, could hate this person, but mm-hmm. Harold works as, as an auditor for the mm. IRA internal uh, revenue, the equivalent of inland revenue. Indeed. And everyone hates Harold. You know, yeah. he's, I mean, he's got kind of one friend at work, uh, but pretty, you kind of get the feeling that other people are working at the IRS for various motivations. Harold just likes numbers, you know, yes. that's why. So when Quite Harold, innocent when Harold, in that sense. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a beautiful, innocent character in this world. And so, you, and like, so when he's eating his lunch, I mean, the, he's reading a catalog of calculators. <laughs> you know, like, okay, that, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> that's what, that's what. And so, is that like pornography for um for for autistics? Well, sort of catalog, was, uh, calculated catalogs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I was in the film crew for the the circus, um, we used to call call the the tool station manual like mm. tool porn. Oh, know, indeed. Like, so we'd all we'd all flip through the tool station manual, going, "Oh yeah, I like the yeah, look of that not, one." Cool. This one's got so, two spare batteries. War sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. drill. But yeah. So we so we we do that. So Harold's looking at these cal- this calculator thing on um, this magazine. But he also he gets given this file to audit, and it's of this belly liberal-minded um, baker who's played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, mm. who's wonderful in this film. One of my favorite, probably my favorite role of hers, except okay. maybe first. Cecil B. Demented. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, but, Stephen Dorff. No, I didn't know that she was yeah. in that. So no, yes. that uh, that is one of my you know want to see, must see type things. So, Please yeah. do. I think that's one of my. It's definitely one of my favorite John Waters films. But it's sure, like, uh, John Waters genius. Yeah. But she is yeah. Maggie is just brilliant in that. Um, mm-hmm. um, and her character's name is Anna Pascal. Mm-hmm. And who, Pascal is a famous it, yeah. mathematician. Yeah. So yeah. Red Pascal like was. Seventeenth uh, century math, French mathematician, and um, he's one. Of, he in, invented a mathemat- uh, one of the first um, mechanical calculators. Mm. 
So he's who who could Harold not you know fall? Yeah, off? there's all these all these references in there. So this sounds a really really interesting script. And why why do you think it wasn't um, better received? I mean, but obviously there's the existential stuff and suicidally depressed um, writers. Amazingly, I mean, of of all the kind of you know kind of films that I, I love, this actually did make a profit. So oh, it was good. Of a, on a budget of thirty million, mm. um, it made three. But it, okay. it still flies under the radar because it's like not Will Ferrell films that did you know that didn't do that great at the box mm. office mm. for for very justifiable reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is just a this is just a gem, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think he's playing to his strengths as a as a straight actor in this? Because there's obviously a comedy, but it's not. Is it a sort of serious film with comic moments rather than a comedy with serious moments, or? I, I think there's this thing, and especially with very funny people, in which it's it's almost like an addiction. It's like they they can make other people laugh, but they can make everybody laugh except themselves. You know? Right. So, so you almost kind of, I think you almost build up depression to balance out that. Okay. There's like a sort of checks and balance. There's like a sort of yeah. balancing act going on inside. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I mean, one of my favorite actors of all time, like Robin Williams. You know, mm. you know, could, did that so what? so well in so many films where he kind of he could you know he could he can be so funny but he could also break your heart like in films like awakenings and things like indeed that. I mean, i'm thinking as well he was a fantastic straight actor in um insomnia yes oh god I mean, and well, also one hour photo i mean he played against type in both those films as, as really creepy as a murderer and a, and a and creep it was and he, he did it really well it I was like one, my god you know so uh, Insomnia is a, a remake, so I mean, I think it's, yes, I think he had, that that's not necessarily such an original role for him, but more more mm. so our photo and, and and others, you know, where mm. you you really get the sense of his range and mm. yeah, no, so I, I so I there's all these beautiful elements that I adore in Stranger Than Fiction, but what what permeates through it most is this recognition that we're all going to die. Mm. Some mortality, yeah, yeah. So, but for him, it, for him, it's so immediate that it is kind of this. It kind of become, becomes a bucket list thing. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Hilbert, who's played by Dustin Hoffman, kind of says, you know, you're either, you know, you're either in a comedy or a tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, try and develop the elements that are are a comedy. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, it, the, the other famous thing is um, tragedy. Uh, comedy is tragedy plus time as well, which I think. Yeah, I mean, this is the, my my favorite moment of Mr. and Mrs. Smith is where. Mm. Lena Jolie says, "Happy endings are just stories that haven't finished yet." Oh, oh, that's a silly damn. That, <laughs> does, that does not belong in this film. This that is a deep, deep line. Yeah, um, I mean, for a really shallow film as well. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it was a book. I mean, it's, it's uh, a friend of mine who used to work at the the video shop when we were up in Clifton. Mm. Um, she hated that film for for another reason, which was she's like, "You're watching an affair." You know, this is this Indeed. is where. Brad Pitt and, and you know, Angelina Jolie yeah, met. They get it together, yeah. And yeah. They, at the end of the film, they're together, and he's not with his, his wife anymore. And that's like, no. and that's why she doesn't like and didn't like that film. And so, there's a lot going on. There's that. a lot going on. Yeah, and more than just an action film, really. Absolutely, um, Paul. This yeah. is um, you have very much persuaded me that Dr. Kino should have um, should have a Stranger Than Fiction in the front window of the Emporium for this week. Okay. So yeah. yes, you made a great case for that, and thank you very much as well for the for the history about the Invisible Circus. Um, Pleasure, yeah. Yeah. Um, now I understand that um, 20th Century Flicks 
which is at 19 Christmas Steps in Bristol, folks, if you want to go and visit it after lockdown. Um, you're involved in the Cinema 3, aren't you? Because there's oh, yeah. a, you've taken over the shop next door and you're going to rival the watershed and some multiplexes <laughs> soon with having a number of different uh, different keynotes in there. So, yeah. Well, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're a very different animal than the watershed, but um, oh, yes. we, we do love them. Um, there are our friends and sisters and Tara. Tara uh, Indeed, Judah. yes, Tara Judah, who's uh, hopefully we're going to get on to Dr. Keynote at some point, but she's uh, she has got a rather lot on her plate at the moment, so hopefully so, one day soon. So she has she has moved to the, the bigger ship of the watershed, but we we have been it was it was a crazy idea of mine um, actually the expansion during you know it's like expansion during the time of cholera. So Indeed, is, yes. <laughs> oh no, that's a perfect, uh, perfect thing to do. <laughs> COVID is, is what we've done, and um, because because I, I you know I sculpt as well. I'm, I I dabble in so mm -hmm. um, but it's uh, so I have all these sculptures from from years ago, um, these wall-mounted sculptures. And the gallery next door was just standing open and was in really, really bad shape. I mean, just like water leaking down the walls, mm. you know. So I've spent the last kind of couple months kind of plugging the leaks, scrubbing off the mold and mm -hmm. painting the walls and getting it kind of ready to do the show. Um, and it was almost ready and now we're, we're back in lockdown. Ah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, but that, uh, it's heartbreaking. But it, it will be there when we come out of lockdown. So... When yeah. we come out of lockdown into December, folks, 20th Century Flicks has got a new um, screening um, space, I think is, yeah. so, uh, is a good so way, can... plus pool sculptures. So yeah. do do you get yourself down there? Thank you. No worries. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been okay. great having you in Emporium. And uh, yes, uh, so that is uh, Mark Forster's 2006 film, Stranger Than Fiction, starring Will Ferrell, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Linda Hunt, uh, Dustin Hoffman, and Emma Thompson, and it sounds like one of those interesting Hollywood films that they do make occasionally, and it managed to sneak out and make a profit, but not as well, not as um, uh, rated as well as it should be by the sounds of it. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, take care on your way back, and uh, yes, we'll uh, we'll speak soon. Thank you for having me. You're most yeah. welcome. All the best. Bye. And that was Dr. Paul Green, um, who is from 20th Century Flicks, a fine pillar of the Bristol film scene. And again, that was a 2006 version, sorry, version, 2006 uh, film, Stranger Than Fiction, directed by Mark Forster. Thank you so much indeed for listening. I do apologise for the whiz bangs and pops that were going on outside. It is uh, the 7th of November and uh, we have Donald Trump out of the White House and we have the, the remnants of uh, Bonfire Night as well. So there you go, a double reason. Uh, take care, enjoy your films and we um, hopefully see you next time.